With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The absolute... Go, go ahead. That's probably our guest. Go ahead. I'll, okay. I'll... So, we'll find out here real quick. But I've got to call you back on, on the other line. So can I call you back here in just a few seconds? Yes, no worries. Okay, I'm going to do that. Okay, I'm going to hang up with you guys, call him back, and we'll get this thing off and running here. Uh, it is always topsy-turvy. It's always fun. And it's always the big broadcast. Let's get to our guest. We are going to uh, call him and get him in here and uh, see what we can do. <laughs> It's always topsy-turvy. It's always fun. And uh, we are going to go to our first guest. This uh, is Dan Savick as you reach me on my cell phone. Okay, we're going to call him one more time because uh, he's he's got to pick the goddamn phone. <laughs> he's got to be able to pick up the phone so we can get him in here. Because uh, if he doesn't, we don't have a show. <laughs> it's kind of that simple. And uh, we are going to try to call him. And get him in here. Hopefully. Hello? There's Daniel. How are you, my friend? Let me uh, patch in our other two panelists, IQ Al-Rizzoli and the great Dan Perkins. Give me a couple seconds here. We have got a uh, bang-up of a show today here on our broadcast. Get a hold of us online, JiggyJagwire.com, for more information. And uh, lots of things happening uh, around the country and around the world. And uh, we have got a great guest joining us here on Skype Audio. Here in just a few moments, we're going to patch in IQ and Dan and get them both. There's Dan and IQ. Perfect. Hello. Okay, well, let, let's do this. We have got our, we've got a great guest with us today. He is fantastic. And uh, this, uh, the topic today is this conservatism. Trump slaps tariffs on Mexicans, uh, the pressure to stop illegals. And uh, we have got a great guest, great guest joining us today here in the broadcast. Daniel Savickas is with us. He is a federal affairs manager at FreedomWorks. He discusses legislative priorities with the staff on Capitol Hill and with other free market organizations. He also works with FreedomWorks Foundation's Regulatory Action Center to educate activists and about upcoming government regulations to fight back against government overreach. Prior to joining FreedomWorks, Daniel worked for Americans for Tax Reform, as well as numerous local and state and national campaigns. He is uh, just uh, an educated individual. He uh, has a lot of issues, regulation, welfare reform, technology, energy, environment, agriculture, trade, intellectual property rights, and foreign policy. And he joins us today here on Skype Audio. Daniel, uh, first of all, give us your take on this situation uh, with President Trump, he announced a new emergency 5% tariff on all goods imported from Mexico, saying it was the only way to get America's southern neighbor to step up and do more to stop the flow of immigrants. Give us your take on this from the uh, FreedomWorks perspective. 
Well, I was very disconcerted to see that the administration was taking this tact with the Mexican government. Fortunately, it seems that it worked out and that uh, President Trump and President Obrador came to a deal to avert tariffs and to get the Mexicans to increase their security for migrants coming in from Central America. So I'm glad that it all worked out in the end and that we avoided tariffs, although I'm wary of using this strategy going forward, even though it worked out in this case, because if other governments don't comply or don't want to get bullied by the United States, it kind of puts the administration in a bad spot of having to implement tariffs, which will hurt consumers across the United States, or having to look like they're bluffing and undermining our standing on a world stage. So I'm very glad this situation with Mexico has worked out, but I'm also concerned that the administration will think that threatening tariffs is an effective strategy going forward. What, what, what do you think about this, IQ? We'll start with you. Well, gentlemen, we can discuss this subject forever, but the fact is that no nation on earth outside the corrupt Western leaders has laws protecting the rights of illegals way above the rights of the indigenous citizens. I recently spent two weeks investigating the immense and very expensive militarized secure borders of Israel with Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, without which, without a doubt, the state of Israel would have ceased to exist by illegals five years ago who would have invaded her without a bullet being fired in the air. Before putting up these borders, Israel was invaded already by over 70,000 Africans within a few months who cannot and will not integrate among them. No decent patriotic American of any race, religion, or political background should ever support any politician or party that advocates open borders and or sanctuary cities. Such entities are treasonous and endangering the security and welfare of American people. You don't need tariffs. You don't need all that bull crap. Put up the border and put troops. That's my opinion. Back to you. Dan, <laughs> jump in there, my friend. <laughs> oh, I'd, I, I, I am anxious to do this. I, uh, uh, With respect to the gentleman um, and his position, I think uh, that we have operated for maybe 50 years under as a country under a philosophy that um it's okay to steal money out of our pockets it's okay to take jobs away and send them overseas it's okay to close factories it's okay to do this it's okay to do that and uh, and we have created us we created a situation where we we lost a significant portion of our industrial base, our manufacturing base. We shipped tens of millions of jobs overseas uh, in this in seeking profits, and uh, I don't I don't think profits are a bad thing. But what I what I think has happened is that too many countries in the world have taken advantage of the United States and. Uh, if anything, there there had been in, has been intimidation uh, about the idea. Well, you certainly wouldn't dare put on tariffs, and and so what Mr. Trump came in and said, you know, I don't agree. Uh, the amount we have we have 
right now about a $500 billion a year deficit with the country of China. And the country of China last weekend, one of their foreign ministers said last weekend, concerning the tariff dispute with China, you know, in the time that Mr. Trump has been president and we've been dealing with this tariff issue, we have exported $1 trillion of goods to the United States. So we have approximately a five-to-one ratio of exports coming in from China and our exports going to China. So the five-to-one. Um, the 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 idea that we should continue to do that and and burn our own economy uh, to me and I've been managing money for over 50 years all over the world never made any sense to me we have Mexico and if you look at the numbers and I did a story on this last week for for Jim uh, the reality is that about 30% of the gross domestic product of, of Mexico comes to the United States, 30%. And uh, the, we have a very substantial trade deficit with Mexico. We also know that Mexico has one of the lowest military budgets or defense budgets in the Western Hemisphere, and in fact, the industrialized nations, at six-tenths of 1% of GDP. Could this government have done something much like what they were had to do as a result of these tariffs by increasing the, the military force at the southern border. There's more I wrote about that they need to do. Uh, we're going through a change in this world, and I was driving in my car coming home from a, a meeting at lunchtime today, and I said to myself, I don't think the American people understand that we have a very real possibility of six more years of Donald Trump. I think that the Chinese, if you see what's happened to their export business in the first quarter of this year, uh, I think the Chinese will be coming to the table and making substantial concessions. See, I think that what's going on is that this is not a trade dispute between China and the United States. It's a trade dispute between China and the rest of the world and the United States is a surrogate, because if you look at all of the industrialized nations, everyone but Japan has dramatic trade deficits with China. And so we have to change the trade policy to make it fair and free. And when we do that, if the Chinese do come to the table, I would expect to see a very substantial rally and a continuation of the acceleration of this economy. Back to you, Jim. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, now, 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 Daniel, uh, with Freedom Works, uh, what, what do you make of, of what Dan just said? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. It it really baffles me the increased focus that a lot of people in Washington have put on trade deficits, and one of the metaphors easy metaphor that comes to mind is that I have a massive trade deficit with the supermarket down the street from my apartment. 
I buy a bunch of stuff from them, but they don't ever buy anything from me. But I would not argue that I have a hostile relationship with that supermarket. I benefit very much from having that right down the street with me. And if you look at China, to apply that example, China ships us so many, so many goods, as the gentleman just, just acknowledged, that we get trillions worth of goods from China, and that allows our businesses, our families, individuals, to buy lower-priced goods to meet their needs when, whether it's higher-quality, higher-cost American goods, might not be feasible for them in their economic position. So I don't think trade deficits is necessarily a good metric to look at to say, oh, we're getting ripped off by the Chinese or the Mexicans. And I also don't think that the Trump administration is purely going off of trade deficits because we've had a surplus with Canada, and yet we saw the Trump administration get involved with the Canadian government over steel tariffs steel tariffs the Trump administration applied unilaterally uh, through Section 232 of a trade bill that passed years ago. The Trump administration used that to say, oh, we can implement steel tariffs on the Canadians. And we've, we've had a surplus with Canada, and the U.S. Trade Representative recognizes that. So I don't think that the Trump administration is out here to do what's best for American businesses and families because it's depriving our economy of lower priced goods that keeps keep businesses here. And uh, one of the last things I'll mention is that he mentioned businesses going overseas. And I, I do a lot with that in my job here at FreedomWorks with the Regulatory Action Center and how much red tape costs American businesses. If we want to stop businesses from going overseas, the solution isn't tariffs or taxes, or you could use them interchangeably because tariffs are taxes, the solution is to reduce the red tape on American businesses to allow them to produce products at a lower price so we can compete with Chinese goods and services instead of just saying, oh, we're going to make it hell for you to import Chinese products. The solution is to make it cheaper to make things here instead of just rigging the system against imports and businesses that rely on them. But I would say to you that, that I, while I understand what you're saying, the one thing that you are not addressing is the restrictions that the Chinese government and the demands that they have on companies who want to do business in China. China is the second largest economy. It's about half the size of the economy of the United States. But for a company to go there to give up part of their intellectual property to do business and the constraints that the Chinese have about doing business, there's a reason why it's five to one uh, imports versus exports, because the exports from China are uh, attractively priced, but we don't get to compete on the higher end by shipping uh, a comparable amount of goods and services from the United States to China because they regulate that and they they're trying to control it and they're doing their trade practices in my opinion uh, are you talk about red tape the red tape of China to try and be able to get into the China Chinese economy puts our our red tape to shame yeah and I, w I wouldn't recommend that the United States adopt the approach of uh, the communist Chinese government that being said, I also 
wouldn't neglect trade with China or implement taxes on American businesses and and consumers driving up the cost of goods and services, which will hurt the economy. And we've seen every time there's been a tariff threat or even rumors of a trade dispute with China or Mexico, the stock market takes a tumble for weeks at a time. This is not something that's going to help American businesses because the Chinese understand that there are unique pressures in a democracy like the United States, and they can afford to wait us out. So tariff threats are not something that's going to benefit the U.S. economy or alleviate the pressures you're talking about that are facing U.S. businesses. It's only going to make situations worse and put more pressure on the administration and our economy. Yeah, but but I think you're you're missing the point that the the percentage of the Chinese gross domestic product of what they export to the United States is about 4.8% of their GDP. The percentage of GDP of the American economy of what we export to China is about one half of 1%. So the implications are that, that China not being able to import to China uh, as a percentage of our GDP the impact that it has, quote, on businesses is, in, in my opinion, is overstated. And as it relates to the fact that we can't import those goods and services, what I've been reading recently, and maybe you have too, is that there are companies in China who are concerned about the seriousness of the U.S. government to deal with these tariffs, that they're beginning to explore moving their manufacturing out of China to another Asian country where they don't have to pay the tariffs. I don't dispute what you're saying. I do dispute the, the conclusions that you come to. Again, I, I don't think a trade deficit is necessarily a bad thing as the numbers that you cite. I don't I don't see that as a sign that our economy is weak or that we're being ripped off in any way, shape or form. And I think that tariffs here cause companies to leave the United States just as much as tariff threats could cause businesses to leave China. These tariff threats, as much pressure as they put on the Chinese economy, it also puts pressures on the U.S. economy. And all I'm saying is that I don't think this is a good way to go about dealing with the perceived deficiencies of our trade relationship with China. That's all I'm saying. I, and I understand what you're saying, but I would I would I would counter by saying that uh, the idea that we run such a huge deficit and we're transferring such a significant portion of our wealth to China puts more power in the Chinese hands than there is in our hands. And all I'm saying is that, is that what Mr. Trump is trying, I believe what Mr. Trump is trying to say, that he believes in both free and fair trade, where everybody has an opportunity to compete in the world market. I happen to be a free trader. I believe that if we take away all of the crap that the governments around the world impose, I mean, does it make any sense that we build a car in the United States, and we ship it to the European Union, and they charge us a 20% tariff, but we import a car from Germany, and we charge a 3% tariff. 
Does that make any logical sense? I don't think so. Is it is it protectionism in its purest form? I think so. And so that that trade and tariffs and trade restrictions have in fact become weaponized, as people are seem to like to use that word today, that countries are defending their economies by creating restrictions that do not create free and, and, and open trade. And what Mr. Trump is saying, we've been doing it since the Second World War, it ain't worked out that well. Yeah, we can get cheaper toasters, but we don't know that we can't get cheaper toasters from Vietnam or Cambodia or someplace in Africa, given the opportunity to do it, that would compete with China. And all I'm saying is that we've been doing something a, way, a certain way for a long time, and what Mr. Trump is saying is, I think we need to take a look at what we've been doing to see it, if it's in our best interest as a nation. And the last, the last point I'd make before I kick it back, I don't want to uh, derail the show here, I, I dispute the notion that trade deficits put power in the hands of other countries. If you look historically at the United States as a net exporter and a net importer, uh, the times where we've been at our highest trade deficits have actually been times when you could characterize our economy as some of the strongest times in our nation's history. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't subscribe to the notion that just because we have a trade deficit with China that we put all of the power in their hands. I, I don't agree with that notion. And I'd, I'd also say that, yes, I don't agree with tariffs. And at the end of the day, I'd like to be as zero tariffs across the globe. I would eliminate the European tariffs, any trade restrictions, China, Mexico, Canada, whoever. The dream is zero tariffs worldwide. I don't think an effective counter to countries like uh, Germany, you mentioned, or other countries in Europe, China, Mexico, an effective counter to their tariffs on U.S. goods is to, is to implement tariffs back, because that puts us in the same situation with higher consumer goods here. And all we're demonstrating to these countries is that we're willing to do damage to our economy in response to the damage that they're doing to theirs. Uh, I, would, I would ask you this question. You, if I, if, and I just need to make sure I understood what you said. Okay. You, you said that um, that when the American economy is strong, the tariffs have little impact, and deficits have very little impact on the economy. In fact, some of the times when imports have been the highest have been the strongest economic periods for our country. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, what I said was, if you look at the times when the American trade deficit, or as you describe a trade deficit, was at its highest point, are the same points where you could characterize um, the American economy at some of its strongest points. But what I don't understand about what you're saying is that in the eight years of the Obama administration, the trade deficit with China exploded and the economy sure as hell wasn't strong. For sure. It was, although coming out of the recession of uh, the, ad, the previous administration, given that that trade deficit exploded, we were in, technically in recovery, albeit a very slowed down recovery that you could point to uh, 
the regulation nation that the Obama administration brought on us, where unelected regulators added thousands upon thousands of pages to the Federal Register and federal regulation. True. I I would not necessarily draw a correlation there. There is a correlation. I wouldn't necessarily assume causation because there were a lot of other reasons that the recovery under the Obama administration was so as anemic as it was. But I yes, I understand it was anemic. I, I was just trying to point out that your your contention was that uh, there's a relationship between economic activity and growth, accelerated growth, and and trade deficits. And and we we went through that eight year period. Granted, we came out of the out of the of the uh, the Bush administration, but but the Obama administration in its eight year term had one of the weakest recoveries in the history of this nation. And as I said, the trade surplus with China exploded. It almost doubled over the time of the of the uh, 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 of the Obama administration. And part of that, I think, is the fact that when we had that negative period for such a long period of time in the United States, where you know we were not we were told that our best years were behind us and things are going to get tougher and we're not going to grow as much and salaries aren't going to go up and all those things that. The president and his administration told us the value proposition uh, became very important to a lot of people in this country. If you have only a certain amount of dollars you can spend on a discretionary item, if Walmart can give it to you cheaper than uh, than Target or or whoever, uh, you're going to go to Walmart. And Walmart is a huge importer from from China, so that the Chinese understood the dynamic of how you could capture percentage of the of the gross domestic product of the United States by dealing and taking advantage of the opportunity to bring in more and more competitive products to appeal to the 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 economic uh, downturn and the slow and tepid recovery placing more and more pressure on discretionary dollars in the United States so they ca- they captured market share they took market share away from from that grocery store down the street and and the same things going on today. You have you have uh, uh, Amazon competing with the grocery store down the street. They're not physically there, but they can get it to you. And so that there are competitive forces that are constantly changing. And so maybe you have a trade deficit with that store, and maybe Amazon wants you to have a trade deficit with all the other products and services that they offer. And they probably do. But it's across a whole myriad of products as opposed to foods and staples. I'm saying that there are dynamic changes that are taking place in the domestic and the world economy and our trade and our policies, as you quickly pointed out, all the restrictions that were put on by the Obama administration did not present an opportunity to prevent a very significant opportunity for growth and it prevented it. And, and, uh, and we saw when we took away those restrictions and we created incentives in this country to bring corporations back to the United States, bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States, make it make the country uh, energy independent, putting thousands of people to work in good paying jobs, lowest unemployment rate in the black community in 50 years, on and on and on. All those things are putting money in people's pockets, which lets them go out and spend. And depending upon where that merchandise is coming from, well, has an impact on the trade deficit with the United States. And if we've got all this good stuff, 
that we're bringing in, we also like to have an opportunity to bring to ship ship out a lot of the good stuff we have. This is excellent. It's an excellent discussion today. We have got Dan Perkins, IQL Rizzoli, and our fantastic guest joining us today from Freedom Works. And uh, so bring us up to speed on, on kind of what Freedom Works does. Uh, I know there's a lot of folks out there that have heard of the organization, but uh, bring us up to speed on, on what exactly you guys do. Sure. So we're a pretty versatile organization in Washington, D.C., and we contribute to the political conversation just uh, as we just demonstrated there. Um, that was a great conversation. I enjoyed that. We contribute to the political conversation by putting out content for a grassroots network of activists across the country, whether it be in the form of blog posts or white papers. But what we do that sets us apart from most of the organizations across this city uh, is our focus on grassroots activism. A lot of these organizations put out very stuffy content that is targeted towards D.C. insiders, whereas FreedomWorks tries to mobilize this network of grassroots activists outside of D.C. to influence the legislative process, to influence the administrative process. And what I do as the head of FreedomWorks' regulatory action center is educate activists on how they can get involved with administrative law. A lot of people know always, oh, what you want to do if you want to stop a bad law or push a good law is you call your member of Congress, their office, and you leave a note or you write a letter. That's all fine and good. But when it's a nameless, faceless bureaucrat at an executive agency, a lot of people don't know what to do and they don't know that they can get involved at all. So we educate our activists as to how they can best get involved. We tell them about the public comment periods that these agencies have, how they can submit comments to these agencies, and how they can craft their comments that they're most effective. And a lot of organizations just craft form letters and say, oh, submit this form letter on behalf of our organization and you're good to go. But uh, these agencies often take form letters and they group them all together and say this is effectively one comment. So we've talked to people within the administration. They know how it works, and we've used that to educate our activists to make them better influencers of the legislative process, the administrative process, so that it's not people like the experts and the D.C. insiders who are driving things, but constituents and actual people across the country are driving action in D.C. as it should be. That's our goal as an organization. Jim, can I ask a question? Yes, go ahead, my friend. Um, thank you. That was that was very insightful. Uh, I I did want to. I don't go, know. Go, go, go ahead, my friend. Go ahead. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious about whether or not um, your organization looks at proposed policies and opines on the desirability or not of them. Oh yes, absolutely. So, uh, what is would, there anything specific? Yeah. Yeah, I'm cu I'm curious as to what what your organization has said about the cost of the new Green Deal. Oh my goodness, uh, that's one of our favorite topics. It's it's honestly, we hesitate to talk a lot about it because we don't think we should give it any sort of seriousness. But unfortunately, people in the media 
and on Capitol Hill have given this far-left progressive caucus a level of attention that's made a radical proposal that would cost trillions upon trillions of dollars over the next 10 years some sort of credibility because they keep talking about it. And now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to her credit, has a lot of the Democratic Party in the palm of her hand by driving action on proposals like the Green New Deal that I don't think is ever intended to go into law, but trillions of dollars on infrastructure projects, um, it's out of trillions in regulations costing businesses money to rework their systems and it would eliminate air travel. It's absolutely ludicrous. And we have plenty of content on our website, freedomworks.org, or on any of our social media talking about how absurd the Green New Deal is. So then let me let me let me move away from since you you obviously told us exactly how you feel about the Green New Deal and yeah. it's pretty much pretty much about what I feel. How do you feel about the other um, leftists in the Democratic Party who want to take the corporate tax rate to 90%, the individual tax rate to, to 70%, and uh, Pocahontas, Elizabeth Warren, who wants to add an <laughs> asset-based asset tax based on the amount of money that you have. They're going to take a percentage of your assets every year. I want you to address that, but before you go there, I want to, I want to tell you a quick story that you may be or may not be aware when Lyndon Johnson decided to declare the war on poverty, John Tower, who was the senator from Congress, came in as they were looking at the appropriation, and he said to the president, President Johnson, this is not true. You're not being truthful with the American people because you're looking at a budget for one year and the Congressional Budget Office looks out over 10 years, and they've talked about this being an enormous expense. And Johnson's response was, well, don't tell the people because they won't, they won't want it. And I look at it and say, you, you said it just a moment ago that the, the, the Green New Deal is going to cost trillions and trillions, tens of trillions of dollars in 10 years. But you didn't say what it's going to cost for the next generation, which is more than 10 years. When we write tax uh, policy or we re rewrite social policy or whatever, I don't think our government thinks long enough about what the financial implications are of what they're deciding. And the idea that we're going to take away 25 or 3% of people's wealth if they've accumulated in excess of whatever the, the implication is that over 10 years, you could take away 30% of that person's wealth or 35% of that person's wealth. Why does the government have the ability, why should the government have the ability to take, pay, to charge me income tax and then charge me an asset tax to deplete my assets to fund the government? I don't, I don't understand why more and more people are not outraged. The reason more and more people aren't outraged is because, as you mentioned, politicians like Elizabeth Warren don't want you to think that it's going to happen to you. They always phrase everything in terms of, oh, the rich are going to pay their fair share, but they like to talk a lot less about how it's going to impact everyday Americans. And if you look at 
the Democrats' Medicare for All proposal, which is another ludicrous proposal to go right alongside the Green New Deal, the the cost it costs an average about three trillion dollars per year to implement from the federal side Medicare for All, and in order to do that, you'd have to double or even triple tax rates on everybody across the board, not just the highest tax brackets. That wouldn't cover it. You'd have to double or triple income or payroll taxes across the board to cover that sort of cost. So politicians like Elizabeth Warren, like Nancy Pelosi, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they like to say, oh, the people who are going to be footing the burden for this are the highest earners among us. But when they, but what they don't tell you is that the middle class and even the lower classes are also going to have to foot this burden because it's just too large to be covered by a, a small tax bracket as the 1% or the top 10%. It can't be done. So these people who say, oh, we're only going to do the corporate tax rate or the top tax rate, they won't tell you that they also, in order to cover the cost of all their priorities, will have to raise taxes on everybody. Yeah. There's a one other thing. I guess we got a little bit of time. Um, I, I want to ask you along the same philosophical lines. Um, <clears throat> one of the proposals from the left is universal guaranteed income. How do you guys feel about that? I think it's r ridiculous. It's another, it's, it's another giveaway program that's going to cost trillions. And even in the most generous proposals where people say, okay, We'll do universal basic income, but get rid of all other welfare programs. It's still an incredibly costly proposal, and it's not something that the government is empowered to do constitutionally as well to just give money to citizens based on need or to just distribute money to all of its citizens. That's not a, an enumerated power of the federal government. So constitutionally, economically, I, I'm not on board with UBI. So the idea that, uh, as I understand many of the proposals, uh, even if you don't work, if you, there's no work requirement to get the 10 or 12 or $30,000, um, that's that you, correct. You yep. don't have to work. You don't have to work to get paid. And, um, I would have thought that that would be abhorrent to uh, Amer Americans, but there seem to be some people who seem to think that this is universal income is, is quote, is a good idea. But the common thread, if I understood you correctly, in all the things that we just talked about, the common thread, and I'm, I'm using my words, not yours, uh, is the stupidity of the American people to be duped by a lie. And I think back to President Barack Obama when he told us, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan for Obamacare. He knew he was lying to the American people. Um, all these people who are talking about whether it's Cortez or, or uh, Pocahontas or whoever, uh, you know, you've got Cory Booker who wants to do, he wants to pay black people for slavery. 
And uh, he also wants to provide, like many other Democratic candidates for the president nomination, free college. But nobody seems to. It, it, we keep we keep hearing, well, we just take a little more from the rich. Just take a little more from the rich. You can't keep taking because the, it isn't going to be there. When you've got a tax burden as high as what's going on, you're not going to see much economic activity because so much of the money that you could make, or is going to be paid in taxes, you're not going to be able to reinvest and grow your economy. No, I agree with uh, most of what you just said there. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that I wouldn't necessarily use the word stupidity. I'd use the word desperation. And Donald Trump hit on this a lot, that the status quo and the establishment has not worked for so many Americans. And even, even now you see the establishment uh, undermining some of the economic progress the administration made. And business as usual in Washington and around the country has failed so many middle-class rural Americans that a lot of them are willing to turn to unorthodox candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And it's not necessarily that all of her voters and supporters are stupid, though I'm sure there are plenty, that a lot of them see the system failing them and they see them, themselves as having no other choice and saying, why not? I'll get on board with this because what's happening now isn't working. And unfortunately, because of the establishment putting its head in the sand, it's given rise to people like AOC and Elizabeth Warren. And it's given them credence because a lot of people said, well, the alternative is also not working. So that's one of the challenges of operating in Washington, D.C., is trying to challenge the status quo without legitimizing people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because their ideas are complete false promises and they're going to let down so, much, so many more people around the country. And it would be a really sad thing if we sent our economy uh, down the drain uh, over false promises and wasted an opportunity to really change the status quo on pie-in-the-sky dreams that can never be accomplished. So if you look into your crystal ball, mm -hmm. what do you think the principal issues are going to be in the 2020 election? I think, I think health care is going to be right up there. Um, some, of the, some of the most fervent reactions that we've gotten from our activists have been on prescription drug pricing issues and I think the fact that Medicare for All has gotten so much traction indicates to a lot of people that health care is on their mind. But we have to find a feasible way to go about lowering prices and one that respects market forces instead of just saying the government's going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars to give you what you want. Forget about the massive tax hikes later. So I think health care is something that Republicans are really going to need to figure out how to message on. Unfortunately, we got caught off guard. We were ready to repeal Obamacare, and some Republicans couldn't get on board. Uh, and that really hurt us because it looked like we didn't have a plan. We have people like Bernie rolling out Medicare for all, for all its faults. It is an affirmative plan. Republicans looked like they didn't have a plan when they couldn't repeal Obamacare. So we have to have a few issues, a few plans ready to go for health insurance, for prescription drug pricing, 
in order to get these costs down for Americans. But get, just judging by the activist reactions we've gotten on campaigns and uh, major legislative pushes that we've made at FreedomWorks, I'd say healthcare is definitely going to be one of the top issues, and I think some of the issue polling bears that out. Anything else? I mean, immigration is always one that a lot of people care about. FreedomWorks' engagement on immigration issues is pretty minimal at this point, but everywhere you go, people want to talk about securing the border, and it's just personally, not from an organizational standpoint, frustrating that people won't do it. I, I understand that there are some criticisms of just saying build the wall, and I think there are better ways to go about securing the border, but people who say that the wall is not the answer just don't want to talk about how we can actually get this done. And Democrats are willing to just put their head in the sand and say, you know, we're just going to wait it out because we don't really need to do anything about this issue. So immigration is something that a lot of people care about, and there has not been any movement on it. You see people talking about it all the time, but nothing substantive gets passed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.